0: Well, last week uh, I was talking about viria, uh energy, and balance of that, and um, something that I didn't get to really uh, at the end of the talk was to talk about skillful means, which is really, you know, all the different techniques and methods that we use both in meditation and in our life um, <clears throat> to balance the energy, to help us wake up. So that's kind of the jumping off point I want to start with tonight, skillful means. But really, the point being that all the skillful means are... And I'm not going to talk about all skillful means, but more the overall picture, are really in the service of one thing only, which is what the Buddha said he taught very famously. You know, the Buddha said, I teach one thing, that suffering and the end of suffering. He said that a lot. And... uh, All skillful means, not only meditation, but in our life, are to help us understand, to realize the end of suffering, but not only as a goal, in the moment, to actualize the heart and mind of non-clinging. That's a simple way to say it. I just want to read this little bit from the Buddha just because. I like it. And this is just little snippets from one of the many suttas where he's talking about the four noble truths. I'm not going to do the whole truths, but he's talking about how he first discovered the profound truth and uh, can't be gained by mere reasoning, by thinking about it, visible only to the wise. The world, however, is given to pleasure, delighted with pleasure, enchanted with pleasure, truly, such beings will find it hard to understand the dependent arising, this profound truth. Yet there are beings whose eyes are only a little bit covered with dust. They will understand the truth. So we can only hope that we're some of those beings whose eyes are a little bit covered with dust. But I was really reading it. for This is sort of the... It's not how he describes the cause of suffering, but that's basically it, that the world and beings are enchanted by pleasure, given to pleasure, attracted to pleasure. That's sort of our dilemma, you could say. In life and practice, no difference. And so when he talks about the uh, ending, the extinction of suffering, it's exactly this attachment to pleasure, this craving that he talks about. So we can talk about the mind, the heart uh, of non-clinging is one way of saying it. A more simple way, and that's how I'll refer to it later, but again I just want to read one of one of his many descriptions of how that manifests, <clears throat> how it can manifest. One who has considered all the contrasts of this earth and is no more disturbed by anything, whatever in the world, The peaceful one, that's himself, freed from rage, from sorrow, and from longing, has passed beyond birth and decay. This I call neither arising nor passing away, neither standing still, nor being born, nor dying. There is neither foothold, nor development, nor any basis. This is the end of suffering." So that's kind of, to me, it's inspiring. It's also kind of grand. But we can also talk about it, as he often does. Is the heart the mind of non-clinging? Or another way of putting it, as we've been talking about, I've been anyway the whole time. Is the mind the heart that's free, in a moment even, from any of the internal torments? clinging, aversion, two sides of the same coin, delusion, confusion, attachment to sense of self, which gives rise to the craving and the aversion. And so any skillful means, any of the forms of meditation that we do, um, and any of the other aspects of our life are all in service of Uh, cultivating the wisdom that ultimately sees through the delusion that gives rise to clinging and aversion, right? Big picture. All of the different techniques are ultimately for that end, whether it's uh, the mindfulness in the myriad of techniques of mindfulness, whether it's absorption practice in the way that the Buddha taught it. Absorption practice, shamatha practice, absorption of the mind very, very deeply into one object is not the end in itself. It's to cultivate a quality of mind that then comes out of absorption to explore the nature of reality, to understand it. His thesis is when we understand things the way they are, the way they already are, clinging and aversion will naturally cease because they don't make any sense. And as long as we think they're serving us and making sense, well, so long there's an us that we think it's serving and making sense, it just keeps on cycling. And as he said, you know, the world, people love pleasure. We do. It's very, very deeply ingrained in us. And so we need all these different skillful means at different times. Not to get to some particular state, not to have a better experience, not to get rid of what we don't like. But the skillful means in themselves, even in a moment, are ways of, in that moment, not feeding the torments, starving the torments. You know, so that in the moment, any of the skillful means are also a manifestation of a heart and mind of non-clinging. So you see what I mean? The means are the end, the end are the means. They can't, we can't practice in a way of wanting and hating and trying to get rid of something and fool ourselves that this is the way to understand non-clinging. It just doesn't work. So that's what all the skillful means share. And um, I just want to talk about one. It's a template but I really like, because I, I find it very, uh, well, helpful, interesting, in the different ways that some aspects of our, our life of awakening, not only intensive practice, uh, work, you could say work, to purify, to cultivate purity of the mind and the heart in the moment. So this tem- in this template, which I first heard from Saida Upandita, But he didn't make it up. It talks about um, how this purification, now when I mean purification, it's kind of, in in my mind, that's a bit of a loaded word. It's not something I grew up with, purification. I don't know. In my mind, it it has a connotation that's a little holier-than-thou kind of thing. But I don't mean that. When I say purification, I'm using it because I can't think of a better word. And what I mean is simply in the moment the heart, the mind, the chitta, the consciousness, when it's pure, in that moment, it isn't clouded by the torments, by the afflictions, by any form of aversion or greed or delusion, just for a moment. We're not all the way to never being bothered again by anything in the world, but in the moment, that's what all of our life of awakening is about, cultivating that purity, recognizing it, when it's present, and recognizing what goes along with it, so we appreciate it. So, on three levels, this happens in our life and in our practice. And interestingly enough, they're the three um, kind of groupings of the Eightfold Path. Sila, morality, Samadhi, collectedness of mind, <clears throat> and Panya, wisdom. So. They say that in, in sila, in other words, with uh, ethical conduct of body and speech, what uh, we're free from when we're acting from sila, from just these simple five precepts, from non-harming in speech and action, is that we're in that moment, the mind, the heart is freed from, in that moment, purified from what's called the, the torments, the kalesa, of transgression, kind of the grossest level. So as you see, just as mindfulness and wisdom get more and more subtle, so also do our friends, the kalesis get more and more subtle. So we start by working on the really gross level. And that's hard enough. God knows. Just keeping our mouth shut and not saying something aversive. Keeping our hand Relax and not writing something aversive, you know? On that level, when we are refraining from that, that level of kalesa, of affliction, we're purifying the heart and mind from that. And that's not nothing, you know? (laughs) That's really what lays the basis for the, the purification on more and more subtle levels for us to see and understand and see through the need for the kalesa, on the more subtle levels. There's a, a lovely saying uh, that when we are acting according to the precepts, when we're not acting from hatred, from aversion, from cruelty, from greed, watching our speech and actions, we are giving ourselves freedom from remorse. You know? And how many of you have mentioned having stuff come up in your practice, memories from however long ago, and we all have them, of stupid or worse than stupid, painful, harmful things that we've done or said, and the suffering, really, the remorse, which is different from guilt. Guilt is like, I'm such a stupid jerk. That's just adding aversion on top of it. But remorse is that sense of wisdom meeting that memory and seeing you know, the causes and conditions for why we did it, the ignorance of it, but feeling the pain of it, you know. So freedom from remorse, and of course granting to others in our field of presence the gift of fearlessness, knowing that we're not going to hurt one another. That's already a great thing. Then on the next level, uh, the next round they call it of purification, the level of samadhi is... uh, In the time that there's samadhi in the mind, the level of kalesa or torment that is kept away, that's cleared out, is called the obsessive, obsessive level of torment, which I think you might be able to relate to. It's the level mostly of thought and mental energy just whether it's greed or worry or aversion to something, and then, you know, upset comes up and up and over and over, and, you're know, just like, oh, my God, why is this happening? So samadhi, I want to just clarify, the best um, description I like of it is it's collectedness of the dispersed mental energy. It doesn't have to be one pointed on one object. Samadhi, it's a moment-to-moment mental factor, just like everything. Everything's moment-to-moment. So it's a time when the mental energy, you know how it's just kind of going all over, and you're sort of aware of the breath, and you're sort of with sound, and there's this thinking going on, and there's some feelings in the back, and you have that little memory, and you, you know, you could kind of say it all. But it's not very collected. It's not really very satisfying somehow. And so a moment of samadhi is when all that mental energy is collected, is unified. It's not like squirting in all these different directions. That's what we call samadhi. It is, as with virya, samadhi is not necessarily wholesome. It can go either way. So the mind could be, just the same as a virya, the mind could be extremely focused, you know, And totally driven by anger, you know, or greed. Let's pick greed. And that can happen in life, of course. We get totally focused on how to get whatever it is we want. It can happen here. If you found yourself totally something you really need, or how to be first in line for lunch, or how can you scheme to get the extra pillow, or something totally stupid when you step outside of it. But at the time, it could completely absorb your mind, right? And all the energy of that. Collectiveness goes into driven by greed. This is not the path factor of samadhi, right? <laughs> but the path factor of samadhi is, of course, wholesome, it, meaning that there isn't in that moment greed, hatred, or confusion. So there's that sense of the unification of heart and mind. It can be in what we call absorption state, where that's unified on one particular object. You're coming back, you're coming back, whether it's anapana, whether it's meta phrases, whether it's a light, whatever it is. It can also be what um, Mahasi calls kanaka samadhi, momentary samadhi, which is that steadiness, the uh, collectiveness of attention just in a moment, but the object could be changing moment to moment. So the samadhi isn't about the object it's about that quality of collectedness in the mind that gives a feeling we can we can you know we can notice what it's like just like we can notice what greed feels like So samadhi kind of uh, has a stability so that it can it doesn't mean that you don't get distracted or greed or aversion doesn't ever slip in but the mind doesn't get carried so far and it comes back more easily and the stronger and stronger and more steady the samadhi gets, the less and less the afflictions, greed, hatred, and delusion arise. So really, in a way, that's one of the reasons everyone loves concentration. So I know concentration samadhi, I don't want to exactly equate them. Because we often talk about concentration as this one-pointedness getting really deep. And then we don't appreciate the quality of samadhi that can be present moment to moment as we move around with changing objects that that the attention's collected the mind and energy's collected but the objects are changing when the samadhi is stronger and steady though it basically keeps the hindrances it keeps the afflictions away they don't have room to slip in in a way so like i remember one time i was on a uh, and long-intensive retreat with sada Upandita, where you note, 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 note every moment, every, every waking moment. And so the object of attention is changing, but that steadiness of connecting and noting, connecting and noting from the moment you get up until the moment you go to sleep, that develops a really strong and stable kind of samadhi. But it's also, I really saw here, how that kind of samadhi is very state-dependent. So I was noticing when the, the steady, steady, note, note, note. There's no greed coming. There's no aversion coming. Just noticing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting. And I was playing with it one day. I was noting seeing. The attention was connected to seeing something. And, the, and then I just deliberately pulled back the attention. I stopped noting. I stopped letting the connect. just kind of let the mind hang for a minute immediately, immediately. In rushed some, I forget if it was wanting or virgin or what. I saw it right away, it didn't go anywhere. It was kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, <gasps> all this work, and as soon as I stop, boom, <laughs> here they come in again. It's not always like that, but I remember that so clearly because I thought, somehow this isn't enough, you know, this isn't enough. And I know now that that samadhi, that steadiness was strong, but it was suppressing, and it was suppressing, the afflictions, and that's extremely useful. For one thing, it, it, it strengthens mind and faith. You get a sense of the brightness, the lightness, the kind of what a sense of purity of mind and heart can feel like. I mean, sometimes people say they didn't even know. They didn't even know how much garbage is in there, you know, they didn't even know that it's possible to have a just a moment where nothing special but it feels so clean and so pure. So sometimes it feels happy, sometimes it feels calm, but just to notice that. And I've also, over time on retreats, this is, we've done longer retreats with a lot of very steady concentration that way, there's a feeling of of kind of like the the consciousness being cleansed, you know, moment after moment, just kind of feels like it's being, sometimes it felt scoured, a little bit rough. Sometimes, just like it's being washed and cleared and cleansed, and you just feel a lot brighter and purer for a while. So, so that's the obsessive level, state dependent, very useful, um, not to confuse with, oh, also sometimes with different kinds of samadhi, very. Strong and wholesome, pleasant states come, like piti, rapture, or sukha, like a real comfort and ease in the body. And those are great. Those are fine. appreciate them. But those are also states that come and go. They don't have to be there for the mind, the consciousness, the heart to be pure. When it's pure, then all kinds of different wholesome states can come. But they don't have to be. They could just be calm, which is also a wholesome state. And so then the third level, that of panya, of wisdom, and this I I really like, it's said to purify the latent underlying tendencies, the real subtle levels, which is sort of like of of these torments, these afflictions of our mind. And many of you have, in the interviews, talked about this using different words. It's sort of like things are going fine and... The mind is really pretty mindful, and there's nothing really bothering you. And out of nowhere, you know, seemingly, suddenly aversion, suddenly greed, suddenly me, me, me just all over the place, and why, you know? And this latent, this underlying level is described as, um, as if it's a seed, you know, there's not really a seed, okay? There's not really a seed of greed sitting in any of us. There's no concrete thing. This is a metaphor. But it's as if there's a seed that when the latent tendencies are still existing, still coming up in our mind stream, when the conditions are appropriate, that seed can sprout. That's why in terms of when the Buddha is talking about different levels of awakening or the absolute awakening of a Buddha where there are no more seeds, that's what it said. It's no longer possible for those seeds to sprout. They're gone, you know. That would be nice. So, but, but for us to see, not with any aversion, but just seeing how that works is kind of interesting. And wisdom... It said that, that these latent underlying tendencies can't be seen through by thinking, by right intention, by, by um, samadhi, but only by wisdom, by really seeing those moments of insight where we understand some aspect of reality the way it is, whether it's impermanence or no self, or just seeing the clinging come up, seeing it so clearly, and it goes. That's a moment of wisdom. In that moment, it's dissolved. So just a little example. I use this a lot just because it's so clear in my mind. Where one night I was, I was driving down Lockwood Road down there on the way. I must have been going up to the retreat center to give a talk a couple of years ago. Not really late, but you know how you're just exactly, you have no extra minute to spare you know, to get there in time. So I was driving down, and you know, it's a kind of narrow driveway in the middle of the road. So kind of present, but not 100%. A little bit of rushing back there, a little that I didn't quite see. So those were the conditions, and then there was some um, person—I don't know who—walking ever so slowly and mindfully in the middle of the driveway. You know, did they move when they heard the car? No. Slowly and mindfully in the middle of the driveway, and I just—I—I I, I was enough present that I saw. Just in that moment, this like shoot of aversion came up, just like, oh, what do they think they're like that, you know? And it was so sudden, because there hadn't been any aversion present, and so strong and sudden, I just, I couldn't not see it, you know? Wow, aversion, look at that. And that was really a sense of that latent seed, not so latent, right? But the latent seed sprouting in that moment. It was met with, it was so obvious that, that awareness was right there. It wasn't even judging it, just kind of like, wow, look at that. Aversion's like that. So in that moment, because it was wisdom, it was met with mindfulness and wisdom, that I wasn't judging the aversion, I wasn't owning, you just, oh, look at that. It went right, immediately disappeared. That's a simple like, example of how when there's mindfulness with wisdom, it takes care of things. In that moment, aversion was not being fed. That's the purification of panya, of wisdom, of seeing clearly with understanding. Oh, aversion arises due to these conditions. It isn't personal. You see it, the conditions change, it's gone. And it's not like it went back down lurking here for to come up again. You know, that's an inaccurate assumption. It was gone. Another time, another reversion will come, sure. But not that one was gone. And that's really, you get a sense, that's the purification of wisdom. That's actually that level is a lot of what we see on a silent, intensive retreat that until we've tuned into it on retreat, we might not notice it so much in our daily life. Believe me, it's happening. Like, that was my daily life. It happens in our daily life. But just to kind of have ourselves tuned into all these different ways that how we act, how we focus our mind, how we notice and pay attention to what's happening are all aspects of this purifying our heart and mind, of, of tuning into the possibility of living with a heart and mind that's free from clinging. What I like about this, template, but the fact that it includes the whole Eightfold Path, it's not just about meditation. And really seeing that in terms of skillful means, we're not just talking about meditation. Meditations, despite all the myriad different ways of meditating, meditation itself is only one of the different skillful means embedded in a path a path as, you know, of wisdom, a path of sila, of non-harming conduct, always paying attention, a, p- a path of paying attention to our intentions, a path of generosity, a path of friendliness, of loving kindness. All of these aspects of how we live our life are part of the skillful means of opening. I mean, when we talk about an open heart, or sometimes, often we use the phrase gladdening the heart, or that sense of sensitivity, connectivity, of love. All of those are expressions in the moment of a pure mind and heart, in that moment. It can show up in many different ways. What I, I like about how, is how the Eightfold Path works, how this template works, is that each aspect of sila, samadhi, panya, the purification, the wisdom that comes from them, serve to kind of like a feedback loop, right? They keep strengthening each other. Just like with the Eightfold Path, we wouldn't start without some little piece of right view of wisdom, you know. Otherwise, we wouldn't even we wouldn't even set foot on the path. We wouldn't even think there was a problem. If I read to you, you know, beings are lost in in pleasure and wanting pleasure, and you know, freedom from. Freedom from suffering is freedom from clinging. And you thought, that's just the stupidest thing I ever heard. I'm out of here. You're right. I want pleasure. I love pleasure. I'm going for pleasure because that makes me happy. I'm out of here. You know, you wouldn't be sitting here listening to me yammer on about this. You'd, I don't know what. You'd be out there looking for pleasure until, you know, you finally saw it's not working. And then you'd come back in, come back in again. But, you know, and then it leads to how that leads to our meditating, that leads to samadhi. It leads then to how we act in the world. That leads back to deeper wisdom and it keeps on cycling and cycling. It opens up our faith. It opens us up to greater, greater purity, really, in all the different levels. And we, we just start where we are. In the meditation retreat, off the meditation retreat, doing your yogi job, whatever. We start where we are in that moment. What skillful means? will help to starve the torment if it's present, help to feed non-clinging. My favorite, this is a story I love of St. Francis, because to me it's, um, it inspires me because of how, from the story, how he started where he was, before he was Saint, you know, and he was Francis, when he lived in Assisi as a young man. And he uh, was the son of a wealthy, very wealthy merchants and so, in a bi- couple of biographies I've read, um, he, when he was, you know, young grown man, I guess late teens, early 20s, he was kind of a wild young guy, rich, and he hung out with a lot of other rich, wild young men, you know, and they basically partied and drank and women and you know the whole thing. I guess like current day rock stars or something. And so that's how he was pretty, you know, pretty wild. It's not how I ever imagined St. Francis would have started. You know, I think he just kind of pops out, St. Francis, from the time he's a baby, but not so. And in this story, at, at that time, of course, there were a lot of people in Europe with leprosy, now called Hansen's disease. And at that time, the, they, the, the people who had leprosy were forced by the different townships, the different governments, to live in like, kind of hospitals or, or kind of homes, probably not very well taken care of, on the outside of the city, you know, so they wouldn't be in the city. And people were really scared because it was contagious. They didn't know how to get it, and they're also disgusted by how people looked with it. And so people with leprosy had to live outside of the city. And whenever they were walking on a road, they had to always be ringing a bell so that anyone who was walking or riding their horse along could hear the bell and avoid him. So, you know, that's the phrase we have now. Of course, it's completely politically incorrect now, but when I was growing up, when you say someone, you're, you're treating me like a leper, it's like that, completely like you're disgusting and ring a bell so I don't have to ever see you. And St. Francis was was like that too. He was really afraid and disgusted by someone with leprosy, or just afraid to even get near it. And so the the thing that that touches me, just as he started where he was, who knows what motivated him, because it was before he had his vision of Jesus speaking to him from the cross, and he moved into great devotion. But something started him. He knew he had to break down his his barriers, his fear, his self-centeredness. So He started by one time when he heard someone ringing the bell and he was riding by on his horse, he threw some alms, some money, down on the ground for the person. That was the start. Then another time, he managed to get off his horse and hand the money hand to hand, which for him was huge, you know, just even to touch someone. And from there, he moved on to really, you know, looking the person in the eye, kissing his hand, and then moving, going down and doing volunteer work, basically. In the place where the lepers lived, so that's where he started, and he turned into Saint Francis. So we don't know, you know, where we need to start. We don't know how it's going to live, but I think it's it's important not to have a hierarchy. Not to think that somehow the subtlety of of deep samadhi is better than the purification of watching our speech and our actions. All of it, all of the different ways, work in a moment, any skillful mean in a moment arises out of a heart and mind that's pure and feeds the non-clinging, feeds the non-aversion. When we're not paying attention, this is a phrase the Buddha uses a lot, feeding and starving when we're just not really noticing what's going on and just acting like that example I gave of greed and concentration where we're just totally focused on getting what we want for half a day. We're feeding greed. That's basically what we're here. Have another log on the fire. Oh, I could get it that way. Yeah, you know, throw on another log. And that that place where it feels good. Yeah, really, these pleasant fantasies feel good. Let's go for another one. Feeding greed. Or, yeah, I am right. They are wrong. I should be angry. Feeding anger. Not with a judgment, but just looking and seeing how this happens. So how we are one experiences in any particular moment, the heart, the mind of non-clinging, it can respond or show up in a situation in many different ways. And I'm saying this just because I know my mind, and I don't think it's alone, has a really uh, very amazing capability of taking anything and saying, okay, now that's how it is. This is how it should feel, and everything else isn't right. It should feel like that. So I know we often, often when I was talking the other morning, some of you here about how sometimes with mindfulness, we conflate it. We include other Qualities that they go mindfulness always is precise, that's what good mindfulness is, for example, you know, and it doesn't have to be. Or we think the purified heart and mind we experience it maybe most frequently or most noticeably in a state of absorption or deeper concentration. And so we think, well, the purified heart and mind means always calm or always a lot of sukha are always that glitzy brightness of absorption or whatever. And just to know that's limited. You know, the, the heart and mind of non-clinging just means the chitta, the consciousness, the heart and mind. Chitta is translated as heart and mind into English. In, in Pali, there's not that distinction. The moment of awareness of consciousness just means it's not clouded by greed, by hatred, by confusion, by any of the suffering states. So it's clear. Any of the various wholesome states could be there. So there could be concentration, there could be piti, rapture, there could be sukha, or not. There could be calmness. There could be um, a sense of peace. There could be a sense of joy. There could be equanimity, you know, just simple, calmed-out equanimity and clarity. It could be a, a kind of just a simple quietness that then responds differently depending on the situation that the mind is faced with in a particular moment. This is what the Tibetans call, you know, the emptiness that's ceaselessly responsive. So here, it's so often we talk about people on retreat, or myself, that, that, those, that space where people either say their hearts really opened, or I'm feeling really sensitive and connected, or different techniques we use that gladden the mind, gladden the heart, and how does that show up? Often in response to a situation. So if you're out walking and you see um, a little bird that's struggling or suffering, the sense of compassion will just spring up naturally. Just feel that connectedness. If you see a bird that's just flying and just looks happy, a sense of friendliness of metta comes up, or mudita, appreciative joy. Or often it's just you see some complicated thing going, you don't know what's going on, it's just equanimity. Okay, that's what's happening. Like today I was walking down the driveway, and there were five or six turkeys, the the big adult one and the other babies, but they're still pretty big. And there was a cat kind of look. I mean the cat was a third of the size of the smallest turkeys, and the turkeys were pretty much ignoring the cat, but the cat was lurking around and kind of charging the turkeys, you know, trying to kind of say, wow, I wonder. And they would go, blah, blah, you know, and then the cat would back off, and then they would just ignore it. And they were walking all around it, and the cat was, you know, it's just kind of fun to watch. And first I thought, should I do something? I've got to save the turkeys. I said, well, come on, you know. <laughs> They're taking care of themselves. The cat's taking care of itself. I don't know what needs to happen. And just kind of sense that that's just life living itself, you know. We keep on, we keep on going. So ceaselessly responsive can show up in all of these ways. All of them are um, manifestations of a heart, a mind, chitta that is free from clinging, free from aversion and confusion. But we don't need to hold on to any of these particular manifestations as oh, this is, you know, what I need. This is how it should feel. This is. No. Then see right away we're back in clinging. And so all the skillful means and the different techniques of meditation aren't to partic except for Brahmaviharas, aren't to particularly make a particular state of mind come. I took away Brahmaviharas because of course in practicing metta you're cultivating the state of mind of metta. Practicing karuna, you're cultivating the state of mind of karuna. But still in the bigger picture, not to hold on to metta or karuna, but because when a real moment of metta or compassion comes, really, it can only come from a heart and mind that's free from clinging. Otherwise, it isn't really metta. You know, there's still that meing about it, that limitation. So yeah, I'm mentioning these just to know not to cling to manifestation. But then to see that all of our skillful means might show up with different states, but they have the same quality of... Sure, the the goal, you could say, the aspiration, is really uprooting the seeds, freeing the heart and mind more and more of even the tendency for confusion and clinging. But the skillful means what they share is you forget about the goal, and they are very pragmatic they're expressing that quality of pureness heart and mind right now in the middle of it and that's really how we can evaluate so to say if the particular in a moment the technique we choose whether it's skillful or not in that moment it's not like there's a list these are skillful and these aren't it's really what's it feeding and what's it starving so in simple, very simple terms, you know, you're, you're all caught up, just lost in fear. You're noticing fear. You're noticing fear. It's intense, but you really have a sense of, you know, fear is like this. We don't like it. Fear is fear. Fear doesn't change into not fear. It's fear. But you, you have a sense. You're not feeding the fear. You're allowing it to be, and there's awareness. So a skillful means. You know, okay, keep watching it. Keep noticing it. Another time, same story, similar fear. The energy's lower. The mindfulness is more distracted. And the fear's getting stronger and stronger. The stories are getting stronger and stronger. And you really start to feel out of control. Maybe not so skillful. Because it's not really mindfulness anymore. It's feeding the fear. Maybe more helpful then. Get up, go outside, open the senses to something else. Seeing, hearing redirect the attention. That's not an avoidance out of aversion. That's a movement of skillful means. And you'll know it because then what, you'll notice that the fear goes down and either calm or balance or mindfulness is fed. The next day, it could be totally turned around again. So it's always about what's happening right now. You know, you do the best you can, you notice what happens. So I want to, Offer, oh, doing, I want to offer some, um, something the Buddha often talks about as a skillful means, which is really working with, uh, I guess you could call it uh, the qualities of, of devotion or gratitude. But again, I want to emphasize that it's not to get somewhere other than we are. This is from Dogen, Zen Master Dogen, very famous Zen Master. Truth is not far away. It is ever-present. It's not something to be attained since not one of your steps can lead away from it. The practice of meditation is not a method for the attainment of realization. It is enlightenment itself. Just to approach how we practice, how we live our life. How we're meeting our mind in any particular moment, what skillful means we're drawing on with that attitude, not to get to some goal, but to express awakening itself in this moment. So, the way the Buddha, I want to start from how the Buddha talks about, he calls, he talks, there's a sutta where he talks about directed and undirected meditation you'll see how this moves into sort of a contemplation on gratitude or devotion. So in this sutta, he's actually talking to Ananda, and Ananda has been telling him about some nuns who are doing, you know, really good practice. So just so you know, this sutta is about the nuns too. And uh, then he's talking to Ananda. The nuns aren't there. And he says, for one who is abiding, contemplating body as body, well, you're familiar, this is a line from the Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is the classic sutta on how to do mindfulness meditation from the Buddha. And the four foundations, of course, are the body, the Vedana, the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the citta, the state of mind, the quality of mind, and dhammas, which is a whole list of the hindrances and the Four Noble Truths and the qualities of mind. And he goes through all four, but I'll just do with the body. So so for one who is abiding, contemplating body as body, with the mind clear and balanced. But then it can happen that uh, a bodily uh, object arises, a fever in the body. And Bhikkhu Bodhi says that means a fever of kalesa, fever of torment in relation to the body. Or a sluggishness of mind, it can happen that these arise. And either that fever in the body, that fever of kalesa in the mind, it causes the mind to scatter outward. That's the Buddha's words. Either we get completely lost and distracted, or we scatter outward into reactivity to the kalesa, to the torment. Basically, it's no longer mindfulness, right? We're lost. So he says, at that point, the nun, the bhikkhu, should direct her mind to some inspiring sign when and what they mean by what he means by an inspiring sign is to place the mind on an object that inspires confidence that inspires inspiration that inspires devotion So this is you're in the middle of a sitting, for example, or a walking, or whatever you're doing. And it's not just you don't like what's happening. Let us be clear. (laughs) It's that the mind is really caught in a fever of kalesa, and the more we try to meditate on that particular object, the more the kalesa is being fed. So you deliberately direct the attention to uh, an inspiring sign, to some image, to some object, that inspires confidence or devotion. The examples that he gives in another sutta, it's a different sutta, he starts with, for example, collections of recollection of the Buddha. And I'll give some other examples and talk a little about it. That may not be the one for us. But in this sutta, he says, where you recollect the Tathagata, that's the Buddha. But we could imagine really bringing to mind in this state if the Buddha inspires you great, maybe there's some teacher you've had, or someone you know or you don't know, that really inspires confidence in some aspect of the pure heart and mind of awakening. Maybe it inspires loving-kindness or, or uh, the, the truth of compassion in you. you know Maybe it inspires this sense of onward leading. Like I know people talk so much about the Dalai Lama because he inspires this. So much in people. I remember, um, well, a, quite a few years ago, I think it was the early 90s, I went with some friends to Nepal and we spent some time with Tulku Urgin Rinpoche, who, who's dead now, who was really one of the main Dzogchen teachers and really very revered and respected Dzogchen um, master. He was wonderful. I didn't spend that much time with him, it was just like 10, 15 days. Took refuge with him and all, but the taking refuge with him, I didn't even realize, but it made a connection in my heart and my mind, you know, really a kind of an inspiration, and I didn't think about it so much. But I was on a retreat, and a few, quite a few years later, he was dead, and I was on a retreat here. And I was doing walking meditation. I forget what was going on, but somehow I needed some sense of inspiration. And somehow I didn't even consciously direct my mind. He just came up. And it brought up such a sense of gratitude and brightness and purity and appreciation and basically love of the Dhamma, right? It was, I mean, it was palpable. It was amazing, actually. It was so inspiring. And not to hold on to that as a a happy experience, but the whole point of it is basically to feed the purification of mind so we can then go back to the meditation. This is what the Buddha says when you do that, when you recollect the Tathagata. At any time when a noble disciple is recollecting the Tathagata, her mind is not overcome with passion not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. Her mind heads straight. When the mind is headed straight, the disciple gains a sense of the Dhamma, experiences joy connected with the Dhamma. In one who is joyful, rapture arises. In one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. One whose body is calmed, experiences ease, and then the mind becomes collected. And that's the same thing he said in this other sutta I was reading. He goes through the same thing where, you know, it's basically the the mind, or we would say the heart opens to gratitude, to appreciation, to goodness, to faith in the Dhamma, to loving kindness, whichever it is. And then as it goes through those phases, we're no longer struggling with the kalesa, the, the heart, the mind is calm again, collected again. And then he says... One then reflects, the purpose for which I directed my mind has been accomplished. It's really a very specific, skillful means. So now I withdraw the directed attention from that object of devotion, that object of appreciation. It's not denigrating or putting down the appreciation, but saying, even that, we don't just hang out there because it feels good, you know. It really because it's purifying in that moment. We're lost in Kalesa. We can't, you know, kind of see through it with mindfulness of that particular object, so switch objects. It's great to consciously bring in what opens the mind and heart. I would say for some people, a few minutes of loving-kindness meditation or compassion meditation has that same does that same thing. You know, it, it Moves the attention, it stops feeding the aversion or the greed and starts feeding the openness of unconditional love, of unconditional compassion. And then, when that's accomplished, uh, in other words, oh, okay, the mind stopped feeding. It. It's, it's feeding now wholesomeness. Then we can go back to the moment to moment mindfulness. That's directed meditation. And then he says, undirected, which is basically just moment to moment noticing whatever arises. You understand it's not focused on before or after. I'm just abiding, observing the body as body. Ardent, fully aware, mindful, and I am content. Just moment to moment noticing. I just want to say a little bit more about the gratitude and devotion ways it's been helpful. Uh, I want to give you the other examples the Buddha uses in the sutta as objects that can help. So recollect oh, he says, when you develop this recollection of the Buddha, you can do it while you're walking, while you're standing, while you're sitting, while you're lying down, while you were busy at work, while you were resting in your home crowded with children. <laughs> basically saying, "No excuse, you're too busy, you can't do it. You know It's something we can do, no matter what other recollections are recollecting the dhamma and for me that's for me personally that really inspires me more than the buddha or as i say particular teachers recollect the sangha the sangha of the blessed ones disciples it might be other people we know who have inspired us and these these next two are interesting cuz i don't think we do it you can recollect your own virtues your own wholesome kind behavior And this is actually something that's accessible to all of us, and we really rarely do it. You know, we think of that as an ego thing. But recollecting with that sense of the purity, the wholesomeness of our virtues here and of our past behavior, that's really a way of gladdening the heart, brightening the mind, and purifying the consciousness at a particular moment. And similarly, the case where you recollect your own generosity and that's also very lovely. It brings happiness. And you can see, as you can feel when you're feeding the purity, the brightening of the heart. You can feel when it kind of switches over to, yeah, I really was generous, wasn't I? You know, Then it, you can see, oh, we're not feeding purity anymore, we're feeding me. Okay, put it down. It feels, you know, worlds different when we're paying attention. So I just want to, one thing, the Buddha, Well, before that, I want to say the way the devotion works, as I've described it, or gratitude to beings, or gratitude to Dhamma, or appreciation of our own goodness, is it's not about the person. As the Buddha said to someone who kept on looking at him and wanting to be near him all the time and said, I need to see you, you're inspiring me so much. And the Buddha said, you know, the holy life is not about seeing the Buddha's person or being with the Tathagata's person. One who sees the Dhamma sees me. So when he's talking about recollecting the qualities of himself, he's not saying, hey, come hang out with me. That's really great. I'm giving you Shaktipat. He's not saying that. He's saying it brightens the heart. It brightens the mind. It opens us out of self-concern and self-interest into vastness, into the surrender to the unknown, into just that sensitivity of presence. This is how Tulku Ergin describes it. The present moment method for becoming quickly accustomed to the unfabricated state of awareness is to have devotion to enlightened beings and compassion to unenlightened sentient beings. Devotion and compassion are both love. And in the moment of love, the empty nature dawns nakedly. If in that moment, the moment of love, you can look inwardly, it is like seeing the sun unobscured by clouds. The nature of emptiness is nakedly manifest. Yet, he says, in the beginning, we need the fabricated devotion, you know, consciously thinking of someone in a Dhamma, because the natural, unfabricated, naturally arising devotion and our uncontrived compassion does not occur immediately. Obviously, we're not just walking around like that. So great. Use the fabricated, what the Buddha is talking about. Consciously bring to mind a being, your actions. Op- allow the heart and mind by itself to contemplate the goodness to open through gratitude, through devotion. And just see that empty awareness, the heart, the mind that's purified in that moment That's a naturally arising together with love, with compassion. They're really both wonderful. In some ways, I think I haven't ever followed it, but the bhakti path, they use it more in the Tibetan tradition and Hindu tradition where there's really a lot of emphasis on finding a particular guru that you know, and really a lot of the work is through working with total devotion to the guru. And I know from standing outside, how can you?" you see all the faults of that person? And it's not about the person. It's about opening up that channel of unconditional devotion, of inspiration, of love, of compassion, of trust that then allows us to be so present, so pure in heart and mind that we notice, we recognize, and we trust the moments of that Chitta of the mind, of the heart that is free, that is pure. There's so many moments of that in all of our days. So I'm talking about all the ways to notice it, to feed it, to create it, but also just notice all the times when it's already like that, when the mind, the chitta, is not clouded by greed, by hatred, by confusion. And just noticing that is feeding it. Notice all the different manifestations. Don't try to limit it. Just open into not knowing. As soon as we need to know it's like this, we know that's that's wrong. So just being open to discover through devotion, through compassion, through metta, through moment-to-moment mindfulness, through concentration, through taking a walk, through looking at the mind sitting, walking, standing, lying down, eating, working, not with aversion, but with love, with surrender, with really appreciating the infinite possibility that's available here and now to all of us. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.